Welcome to Bible Breath, where we dig into the Word of God to catch our breath for whatever's coming next. We're continuing to talk about four key biblical concepts, concepts that you find popping up throughout Scripture and so are really foundational for our knowledge of Scripture. Sin, grace, faith, and works. Today we're talking about faith, why faith is needed, what it is, how it works, and how we get it. As we start talking about faith, I'd like you to think about this question. How do you stop an impala from jumping? <laughs> Sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? So an impala is um, like, a, like, a, like an antelope or a deer. It's in that family of animals. And they have an incredible ability to jump. An impala can jump um, a distance of 30 feet just in one jump, and it can leap over things that are 10 feet tall. So incredible jumping ability. Impalas are maybe, you know, at, their, at the most five or, six, five or six feet tall. And the way to stop an impala from jumping is to get them behind a wall that is just as tall as they are, five or six feet tall. It's a wall that they have the ability to jump over it easily. Any impala could. But if they're standing behind that wall and if they can't see the place where they are going to land, the impala will be too scared. The impala will not jump, even though it has the ability, because it can't see the ground on which it will land. In other words, an impala needs faith, in a sense. They need to be able to see something in their mind that they can't see with their eyes. It's necessary for the impala to be able to escape different animals. They could really use the gift of faith. <laughs> it's also necessary for Christians. Christians also need the gift of faith, and today we're going to talk about why that is. Firstly, let's review a couple of things. We talked about in previous lessons, we've talked about sin, we've talked about grace. And as part of that, we remind ourselves, and like it says in John 3.16, that Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. Like everybody's in, everybody in the world, all of their sins are paid for. John 3.16 says that so clearly. God so loved the world that he gave his son. In 1 John chapter 2, it says the same thing. It says that Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the bill on everybody's sins, every last one of them. Everybody can go to heaven. But even Jesus made clear that not everybody will get into heaven. In the book of Matthew, as Jesus is talking in chapter 25, he talks about what's going to happen on the last day, on judgment day. And he says, some will go to heaven but some will also go to hell. Even though he paid for everybody's sins, the sins in the whole world, some will still go to heaven and some will still go to hell. He told another story about that in Luke chapter 16, the, um, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, about a man who was very, very wealthy during his life here on earth, uh, lived in luxury, had everything, he, had everything anybody could ever want and so much more. And then uh, living right outside his front door, basically, was a beggar named Lazarus who was in rough condition and, and he had nothing on earth. And if you ask, well, whose life was better? Who had the better life? You might be tempted to say, well, the rich man who had everything he ever needed. But Jesus gives us a longer perspective on their lives than our eyes can typically see. He gave us the perspective of what happened to each of them eternally. He says the rich man died and he went to hell where he was in torment. But Lazarus died and, and he was taken to heaven where he was comforted. He was comforted. 
Some go to heaven, some go to hell. And so what's the difference? Mark chapter 16 tells us, where it says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so the difference, according to the Bible, of those between those who go to heaven and those who go to hell is it's belief, another word for faith. Those who have faith are saved, but those who don't have faith are condemned. This came up in a, in a previous lesson as we talked about the gift of grace in Ephesians chapter 2 where we said, it's by grace you have been saved. It talks about the necessity of faith. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. So, so we have to define what faith is. But first, let's define what faith isn't. In James chapter 2, it says that faith isn't just a general knowledge that there is a God. You know, it says, you believe that there's God? And just one God? Well, that's good. Well, even the demons believe that but it doesn't comfort them. And so even the devil knows that there's one God, but that doesn't mean that the devil is going to be saved. Even all the evil angels believe that and know that there is one God and they know exactly who he is, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be saved. And so faith is more than just knowing that God is real or knowing that there is a God. There needs to be a little bit more to it than that. And the Bible tells us what else there needs to be. For example, in Isaiah chapter 12, where it says, surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. You know, and so that fills in the definition a little bit better that faith is trusting in God for salvation. It has to be somebody very specific, something, something very specific. And so trusting in God. It's kind of like when you're teaching a little kid how to swim and mom or dad is in the swimming pool and the kid is standing at the edge of the pool and they're trying to convince their kid to jump you know, jump into the water and they say, what do they say? I'll catch you. You can trust me. They have to trust. They have to have faith in their parents. So faith that their parents will catch them eternally for being saved. It's our faith being in God. And more specifically, faith in Jesus. We, saw, we see that in, um, in the book of Acts. Once when the apostle Paul and his friend Silas, they were imprisoned for sharing their faith and so wrongly imprisoned and you think about well how how would how would i feel if i was wrongly imprisoned just for telling somebody about jesus i i might be tempted to feel kind of bitter and angry but it seems that they weren't they were in their jail cell and it says that they were singing hymns and they were they were doing just they were doing just fine and singing hymns like christian songs um loudly enough that everybody including including the jailer could hear them and so late at night there's a big earthquake and all the jail doors flew open and the jailer rushed into place where all the jail cells were and, and he looked around and he thought, oh no. It's like, everybody's gone. They all escaped. And back in those days, if you were the one who was on duty while everybody escaped, then your life was going to be in danger. And so he was about to kill himself when suddenly a voice came from one of the cells. It was the Apostle Paul who said, wait, don't do it. We're still here. And they were. And the guy was so terrified and so respectful of Paul and Silas and, you know, the others that he came and he asked them, what must I do to be saved? And he said very specifically, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's saving faith, specifically in Jesus. And so I want you to think about how that applies to different world religions today, just as we talk about faith and the faith that saves. I want you to think about how you would how you would answer this. Uh, think of it as in a, like, like a, would you agree or disagree with the following statements? Are you ready? Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists 
have faith. You would agree with that? Yeah, that's absolutely. They have faith in something. They all have faith. Agree or disagree? Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists can have strong faith. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are many very devout Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists. They're very devout in how they practice their religion, devout with how often they pray, um, how often they go to their worship places, um, making pilgrimages across the world for the sake of their religion and the God that they believe in. Last one, agree or disagree? Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists have saving faith. According to the Bible, you would have to disagree with that one. Because Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists, some believe that Jesus was a real person, but none of them believe that Jesus was the savior of the world who takes away the sins of the world by his sacrifice. And so they can all have faith. They can all have strong faith, but none of them have saving faith. Saving faith. Faith has to have faith in something in particular. And it doesn't matter how strong your faith is if you don't have faith in the right thing. Like I could, um, I could take off my watch, for example, and I could decide to have faith in my watch. And I'm going to say, I'm going to start worshiping my watch. I'm going to build a church to my watch. Um, I'm going to give offerings to my watch. And I'm going to try to recruit other people to worship my watch as well. And we're going to, we're going to sing songs and <laughs> we're going to praise the watch and I'm gonna put my faith in the watch. But in the end, my watch can't save me, not eternally. It just doesn't have the ability to do that. And so I would be putting my faith, even if it's strong faith, in something that has no ability to save. Saving faith is faith in something specific that actually can save. And that's something specific, the Bible says, is Jesus and what he did for us with his life, with his death, so that leads to some Bible buzzwords, just to be very clear on some different terms. So the word faith is very simply being certain of something that you can't see. You have faith in it because you have faith that it's there, faith that it's real because you can't prove it. You can't see it with your eyes. Saving faith is trusting in God and his promises in Christ Jesus for our salvation. Trusting in something very, very specific. That's saving faith. Trusting in Jesus and all that he did. To believe is to accept something as true from the heart. It's a synonym for faith. When we say we believe in Jesus, we're saying we have faith in him. We believe in everything the Bible says about him from our heart. The word condemned came up earlier in the passage from Mark chapter 16, um, that those who do not believe are condemned. It means that they are subject to God's punishment. And now two words that we're about to talk about. Righteousness, which means perfection, and credit means to be given something that you did not earn. Keep those things in mind as we get into talking about how faith works. There's a passage in Philippians chapter 3 that I'm going to read here um, and then explain what it means about how faith works, why it does the good things that we need it to. Paul says, he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Jesus is the best. Uh, For whose sake I've lost all things, Paul says. He lost a lot of things because he followed Jesus. A lot of people took things away from him. But he said, I consider everything else except Jesus garbage so that I can just have Christ and be found in him having a righteousness of my own that comes not from the law, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ Jesus. And so remember, righteousness means perfection. And he's remembering that we need to be perfect in order to be good with God. And since I can't give that to God on my own, somebody needs to give righteousness or perfection to me. And he says, 
we get the righteousness of Jesus by having faith in Jesus. Remember the mathematical equation that our plus sin minus holiness equals eternal death, but Jesus plus holiness minus sin equals eternal life. Jesus considered himself worthy of death and hell, taking all of our sins on himself, saying basically, I'm guilty for the sins of the whole world, Father in heaven, please punish me so that our sins would be punished in him and not us, and so we would be left to receive his eternal life. Martin Luther, who was a very well-known church theologian back in the 14 and 1500s, said it this way. He said, Christ died for me. He made his righteousness mine and made my sin his own. And if he made my sin his own, then I don't have it and I am free. And that's what faith does. In faith, God gives you the righteousness or perfection of Jesus, and it takes from you all of your sin and gives it to Jesus. And like Martin Luther said, if all of your sins belong to Jesus now, then when God looks at you through faith in Jesus, he doesn't see them as belonging to you. And so he treats you as someone who has no sin. The Bible also describes the what happens with faith and this relationship with righteousness and perfection by talking about it in a sense of credit. In Genesis chapter 15, it says that Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So there's that word righteousness again, perfection. And something was credited to him as perfection. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul explains a little bit more what's meant there in Genesis 15, where he says, the words it was credited to him were written not just for Abraham, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And so you have to be familiar with how credit works. You might be familiar with a credit card, of course. If you have a credit card, it means you have now been given the ability to spend somebody else's money. And so a credit card is given to you by some sort of financial institution, a financial institution that has money of their own. And if they give you a credit card, they say, you can use some of our money and spend it as if it is your own. Act like it is your own. Um, and so let's say my bank does that for me. And let's say I want to go out and buy a $5,000 or something or other. And I don't have $5,000, but I go and get a credit card from my bank and they um, and I take that credit card and they say, okay, you can spend up to $5,000 of our money. Um, that's how much we'll give you. I give them the place where I buy the something or other from and they swipe the card and they I just spent the bank's money as if it were my own. But of course, with a credit card, as you might know, the places that give you the money expect the money back eventually. <laughs> and not just the money back, but they expect the money back with interest for the right of, you know, the privilege of being able to use their money when you don't have the money. And so something that costs you $5,000 eventually might cost you 6000 or 7000 depending on what the interest is. That's getting a little too much detail, more than you need to know. But the basic sense of credit is that somebody who has something gives you the ability to use it as if it's your own. And that's what the Bible says happens when we have faith in Jesus. Is that when we have faith in Jesus, God credits us with Jesus' righteousness, with Jesus' perfection, so that even though Jesus is the one who earned it, Jesus is the one who owns it, you now get to use it as if it's your own. Which means that when you think of your relationship with God, you get to use that, knowing, believing, that God sees you just as perfectly as he sees Christ Jesus. 
through faith, God credits you with the righteousness of Jesus. Just like a credit card institution credits you with money, but with one big difference. While you have to pay back what was given to you by a credit card company or a financial institution, you don't have to pay God back. He gives it to you. Remember the teaching about grace as a free gift. It's yours always and forever. That's what it means that you are credited with the righteousness of Jesus through faith. You get to live with Jesus' perfection as if it's your own. What a cool gift. But there's one important aspect of this that we really need to be aware of. It is vital to understanding faith. If you go back to the lesson on sin, there were four sad results of sin that we talked about. And one of those sad results is that we were born spiritually dead. You know, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And at the time, we said, you know, just as a body that is physically dead is not able to all on its own decide to be alive, so somebody who is born spiritually dead does not have the ability all on their own to suddenly be spiritually alive. Or say it another way, nobody has the ability when they come into this world to just all of a sudden say, I'm going to believe in Jesus. I'm going to have faith in Jesus. That would mean that they have spiritual life. But since everybody is spiritually dead, Nobody has that ability. And yet there is a way for us to have faith, even if we aren't born with the ability to have it to have it on our own. And the Bible talks about how that is. And I want you to think about it by thinking about how a body that is physically dead can become alive. Think, for example, of a body whose heart has stopped beating. Their heart has stopped beating, and so there's no life moving through them. The, the blood has stopped flowing, the, it's stopped pumping, and... And that person whose heart has stopped beating, they bring them into the emergency room or the operating room, and they don't have the ability to just say to themselves, well, heart, I want you to stop, you know, start, start pumping again. They don't have that ability. Something needs to be done to them in order for their heart to start beating again. And very often, what is done in those kind of situations, when somebody comes in with a heart that has stopped beating, that is no longer beating, that is medically dead, so they take the electric shockers, uh, the things that have electricity coursing through them, and they pull them off, and they, after they're charged up, and they rub them together, and then they put the shockers in with the hope that that electric shock will get the heart pumping again, that it'll make it alive. And very often, that's what happens, that a heart that was dead is now alive, not because the heart suddenly decided, oh, I'm going to be alive now, but because someone did something to them. Somebody from the outside had an impact on them, that gave them the ability to live again. And that's how the Bible describes the process of us coming to faith. The Bible says in multiple ways that we are spiritually dead when we come into this world. We do not have the ability to get our spiritual hearts pumping. But there is a way that they can begin to start pumping. It's just we, the individual, can't do anything about it. Something needs to be applied to a person's dead heart in order for it to become spiritually alive. The book of Romans tells us in chapter 10 where it says, consequently faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. And so the message about Christ, that's, that's the good news of the gospel. When somebody hears the good news of the gospel, there's, there's something that happens there that we don't have the ability to really see so clearly with our eyes. It's like the electricity that flows through those shockers that gets a person's physical heart going. 
there's an electricity, I suppose, in a sense, although it's not electricity, that flows into a person's spiritual heart that gives them the ability to have faith now in Christ. It gets their spiritual heart pumping. The ability to believe in Jesus, to have faith in him, comes from hearing the good news of the gospel. And the Bible tells us, we'll talk more about this in a future lesson, that this is the primary work of God, the Holy Spirit. You may have heard about God, the Holy Spirit, and again, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit much more in, in future lessons, but creating faith in our hearts is the work of the Holy Spirit. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says that. He says that, you know, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. This is the Holy Spirit's job. He's like, the Holy Spirit is like the doctor that applies the electric bolt to our spiritual hearts and gets them pumping for Jesus, gives them the ability to be alive, the ability to have faith in him. Faith in Jesus, saving faith. And a question often comes up, well, have people always needed this faith in Jesus to be saved? Like, you know, Jesus, the Savior, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead, he wasn't here back in the Garden of Eden. He wasn't here on earth yet in in human flesh back when Abraham and Moses and King David were here. I mean, there were there's a huge chunk of the world's history that happened before Jesus came. How are they saved? What do they have faith in? And the short answer is the same way that you and I are. If you just picture the biblical timeline from the Garden of Eden all the way to the present day and Somewhere about right here is the birth of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and when our salvation was earned. We look back on Jesus and we have faith in what he already did. Ever since the Garden of Eden, they looked forward to the same Jesus. Not knowing as much detail about him as you and I do, but, but they were putting their faith in something that their eyes did not see, just like our eyes cannot see him. But people have always been saved by faith in the Savior, the same Savior. They're just looking at him from different perspectives. And faith is also, you know, it's not only important when it comes to our eternal life, our salvation, it's also important when it comes to our day-to-day -day life. One story in the Bible, um, and when I say story, by the way, I don't mean like invented story, but an in, in account in the Bible that illustrates the importance of faith it has to do with someone named Gideon. Gideon was a leader for the Israelites in the Old Testament. So this is before Jesus was born, before he died, before he rose again. But he was a leader of the Israelites, and at the time of the Israelites, uh, there was a nation that was very much opposed to them, and that was the nation of Midian, the Midianites. And in the book of Judges, chapter 6, God said to Gideon, he said, Go and save Israel out of Midian's hand. You will strike down all the Midianites. And so God was telling him basically to go to war with the Midianites because the Midianites were a big threat to the Israelites. The big problem was is that Gideon and his army, they were totally outnumbered. The Bible tells us there were 135,000 Midianite soldiers and Gideon and his army only had 32,000. So those are really bad odds. It's like four to one odds in the, ba in the bad way. Each one of Gideon's soldiers would have to take down four Midianite soldiers in order, in order, for, them just, in order for them to win. But then God decided to do something really eh, questionable, you might say. He made the odds even worse. He asked Gideon to ask his soldiers to tell him if they were afraid. And so Gideon said, how many of you are afraid? And 22,000 of them raised their hands. <laughs> and God told the Gideon, he said, he said to Gideon, tell everyone who's afraid to go home. We don't need them. 
So now Gideon's down to 10,000 soldiers, just 10,000 soldiers. So now the odds are even worse. But then God didn't stop there. Then God told Gideon, he said, take them, take your soldiers, your remaining soldiers down to the water and pay attention to how they drink. And if the soldiers drink this way, the water this way, then they should go home. And if they drink it in this particular way, then they should stay. And so he did that and he paid attention to that. And he sent all the soldiers home that God told him to send home. And he was only left with 300 soldiers going up now against an army of 135,000. Those are really, really bad odds, like really bad odds. <laughs> now it was like 450 to one. Each Israelite soldier was going to have to take down 450 Midianite soldiers in order for them to win. And you know what happened? Would you, I mean, would you bring your army of 300 into a fight like that? Probably not. But Gideon did. And in Judges chapter 7 and 8 tells us what happened. Just all the Midianites ran away, crying out as they fled, and Gideon routed their entire army, just like God said they would in Judges chapter 6, where he told Gideon, you will strike down all the Midianites. That's what he said. He didn't tell him how many soldiers he would do it with. He didn't tell him the process of whittling down the army. He didn't say that he was going to do that for Gideon at the time. He just made a promise. He said, you will strike down all the Midianites. Which is why, it seems, Gideon went in to that battle with his 300 soldiers. Because he took God at his word. God said something. And maybe Gideon, well, not maybe. There was no way Gideon would have been able to see with his eyes how that was going to happen, especially as the army went down to nothing. But it didn't matter what he saw with his eyes. Gideon had faith. God said something. And he knew he had the right to believe it. Because God knows how to keep a promise. Keep that in mind as you think about faith in your day-to-day -day lives. When you're looking for reasons to have hope, reasons to not be afraid, reasons not to worry, reasons to be confident, reasons to believe that you are a child of God. Dig into the word of God and find a place where God says that, where he says, you don't need to worry about your life. Your heavenly father knows what you need. Or one of the hundreds of places where God says, you don't need to be afraid, be strong. Be courageous. The Lord your God goes with you. Go to the places where God says, you are forgiven. You have been justified. And the place where Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you and I'll come back to take you to be with me in the place where the Bible says every tear will be wiped away from your eyes and there will be no more death or crying, or pain. Maybe that's not what you see in your life right now with your eyes. Maybe that's not even what you feel in your gut. But it's what God says. And you can be sure, then, that it will happen. It's the beauty of faith. It's the beauty of saving faith. Having faith in a Savior who is determined to keep every promise God makes no matter what it would cost him.